HMC Investigations teams up with former criminal defense attorney Fletcher Long and author and research specialist Tracy Ellis to discuss real live cases. Some episodes are live and some are not, but don't worry, we want to hear from you. For questions and comments, send an email to thefinalreportpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to The Final Report. Today we're going to do things just a little bit out of the norm. Instead of discussing unsolved or pending cases, we've elected to talk about a case that I think most people are familiar with. It's the Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery case. Before we do, I just want to say, damn, it's been a crazy week. (laughs) How are y'all doing? I'm doing well here from uh, Kentucky. Good, good. So it's... Everything's good up north. Tracy, how's life down there in the dirty, dirty? It's dirty. <laughs> <laughs> it's well. all right down in Mississippi. We're it, in muddy. We're muddy Mississippi. Yeah. Well, okay. Is it is it wet down there? Yes. 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 It's been raining. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, guys. All I'm going to say is this week has been one of the busiest and most hectic weeks, like, ever. And uh, I'm behind on schoolwork, my house is a mess, and I haven't come up for air since I don't know when. Um, so, uh, anyway, I guess we'll take a moment. Fletch, uh, I know you've probably had a chance to look at this case, and being a former criminal uh, defense attorney, I think you probably would have the uh, most relevant insight to this case so I'm gonna let you take it um, take the floor for the first round well it was a very famous documentary and incidentally Lynn Kaczynski was the lawyer that became quite famous uh, in the defense of the case and he later got elected judge and then was accused of his law clerk of stalking her and he went he went on trial about a week ago and was acquitted so just kind of an interesting epilogue. We're going to start with the epilogue. But it's the story of a man named Stephen Avery, who was from uh, Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. He served 18 years in prison for a wrongful conviction of both sexual assault and attempted murder. Um, And he was released, and they had to pay him quite a bit of money from a civil suit. And then um, he gets again charged in 2005 and convicted 2007 for the murder of someone named Teresa Halbeck. Uh, the connected story is Brendan Dassey, who was also accused and convicted as an accessory in the murder. And the, uh, the whole thing hinged on Dassey uh, being kind of harangued into giving uh, a confession. And the police in the case used a very controversial technique that is commonly used in law enforcement known as the Reed technique. It's nine steps of interrogation, which its detractors say um, is too easily uh, productive of false confessions, especially with children or people who are mentally infirm. And that would have applied to Brendan Dassey, the latter, and not not necessarily the former. Uh, But uh, anyway... This was the case that had the uh, the big Netflix premiere. I think everybody watched this case. Um, but it had to do with uh, a murder and sexual assault of a woman and a confession that was obtained 
the tainted confession, if you will, obtained from Dassey that implicated both Dassey and Avery and their subsequent convictions from it. And so that's really um, the situation. A Avery, his family owned a salvage yard. Uh, he was arrested and convicted of an assault of a woman named Penny Bernstein. Uh, he had an alibi and was convicted notwithstanding the alibi. He served 18 years in prison before he was exonerated with the aid of the Innocence Project. And if those of you may not recall the Innocence Project, but that was started by Barry Sheck. Barry Sheck was famous for, say it with me, girls, what case did he defend and became so famous? O.J. Uh, O.J. O.J. Simpson. Barry Sheck was probably one of the most brilliant members of the Dream Team in the in the People versus Orenthal James Simpson. You ought to go back and watch some of that sometime. Did, did Sheck you know just tore him apart. Tracy knew it. I know Tracy knew did this. She, did you know it? Be honest. No. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, anyway, Barry Barry Sheck started something called the Innocence Project, and this was the advent of the use of DNA evidence to exonerate people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he did in this Penny Bernstein. Uh, Bert, I, it might have been Bernstein. I can't Bernstein. But uh, uh, in that conviction of Avery, they used DNA uh, and it was matched to a man other than Avery. You know, so Avery was released from prison in 2003, filed a thirty six million dollar civil lawsuit against Manitowoc County and several of the officials. Uh, two years later, uh, in now, now the filing of the lawsuit, uh, ladies, is important, right? right? He files, he gets out of jail, he's exonerated, files a thirty-five million dollar uh, lawsuit, and then he gets, uh, he gets charged again. Yep. You know, I mean, that that's one way to win a lawsuit, right? You know, you just charge, he gets charged again. Uh, so he in two thousand five, he was arrested and charged with the murder of Teresa Hallback, a photographer, who had disappeared after. Uh, photographing a vehicle at the salvage yard that was owned by Avery's family. Uh, the, the murder case, uh, the way it was handled was controversial. Avery and his lawyers argued that he had been set up. Hmm. And remember, now, what's, what's pending? What, what would be their motive to set right. him up? No, they didn't have the any motive at all, none. 35 million <laughs> motives. <laughs> yeah, 35 <laughs> million motives. Right. So, so, so he, can't he, be, um, he can't be still get that even though it was something totally different, another murder, he still can't get that money? Uh, well, I mean, how many juries do you know are going to award money to a murderer? I mean, um, technically that lawsuit would still be a valid impending lawsuit, but how many juries do you know are going to award money to a guy that's just been convicted of a sexual offense and a, and a murder of a, of a subsequent individual? Ask any civil lawyer you want to ask. That's not going to happen, you know. Okay. Well, before uh, we get into, like, the court case the court stuff, case is, um, can we talk about some of this evidence that they... Yeah, well, I, I, was, I was getting to that. They got yeah. bloodstains recovered from the interior of Halbeck's car that matched Avery's DNA. And that's one of the reasons his lawyers were arguing that he had been set up. And they, they're going to claim that they planted the blood in there. They would have his DNA... Tell me why they would have his DNA, Kevin. Right, right. Well, we right. know why. <laughs> been in prison, you know. I mean, yeah. the guy's been in prison. He was convicted the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, I happen to know, as being the only member of this panel who's ever been convicted of a felony, 
that when you get convicted of a felony, they take your DNA and they keep it, you know. So yeah. it would have been easy for them to to plant some DNA in there. So they found some blood stains. They said it matched his DNA. Um, and Avery said it was a it was a uh, frame up. So um, what happens? And and the, and they also accused him of of tampering with the evidence after a vial of Avery's blood, which this is very important, stored in an evidence locker since the '85 trial. Mm-hmm. You understand? And they took some blood. With. Yeah, it was tampered. It was found with broken container seals and a puncture hole in the stopper. Holy! Right. Can we cuss? Oh. Can, are we allowed to cuss? Holy yeah. shit. Holy shit. Fuck yeah, you're yeah. allowed to cuss. <laughs> they find a vial of his blood from the 85 trial where he's been exonerated as the subject of the civil suit for $35 million against him. And mysteriously, it's been punctured uh, in the stopper, and the seal is broken, and the container is broken, and, you know, good Lord, and blood winded up in the inside of this uh, disappeared woman's car, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, that's why the Avery lawyers believed that the, that the evidence had been planted, and frankly, they had a very legitimate, uh, uh, that's a very legitimate point. Um, so uh, the, the Avery tube contained an EDTA, and I'm not going to try to tell you what it is, it's an acid, Mm-hmm. That prevents blood from coagulating, which is why it wouldn't have, you know, which is why it, it and it also prevents it from degradating. Right, right? that wouldn't so have you're been going, there okay. had it been just, blood from 20, his body. Right, right, right. Twenty-year-old blood. How in the world did it not degradate? Well, it didn't degradate because it'd been stored in an evidence locker, right, with EDTA mm-hmm. that would stop it from doing that. So uh, anyway, uh, he was arrested, prosecuted, he was convicted. Uh, and his nephew, Brendan Dassey, was accused and convicted as an accessory to the murder based on his confession under extreme interrogation where they were using this, this uh, 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 technique. Well, so, yeah, and let's, let's talk a little bit about what that even means because, um, you know, they did argue with the Supreme Court that it was coerced, and their, you know, conclusion of all that was that it wasn't coerced because they were friendly and it was a comfortable atmosphere and, you know, whatnot. But um, the Supreme Court had actually, uh, let's see, what was this? Um, i got to refer back to some. some uh, it, was a, it was a split. I think it was a four to three ruling, wasn't it? Uh, well, at yeah, the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, of course, you know. Four, three, there should have been nine justices in the United States Supreme Court. Oh, no, it was four to three in the Seventh Circuit, and then the Supreme Court rejected a motion to overturn the ruling, reinstating the conviction, uh, is what is what it was. Um, let me say this, too, though. This technique that they used, I want to talk about it. If, is this, if this is okay, I want to talk. I'm excited about this show, obviously. Yeah. This, is called, this is called the Reed Technique. It's it was named for a guy, I think his name was Stephen Reed, I'm not sure, but it was named for a guy that was a criminologist, used to go around and give lectures and stuff. And under this, te- there's nine steps of interrogation. Police departments use this in America, all everywhere. It is, it is against the law in many other foreign countries. The first thing they do is they bring you in and they tell you that they got you, mm-hmm. okay? They got you, you know, you're our, own, you're our prime suspect, uh, and they want to offer you an early opportunity to explain. This is where they come right in and go, we know you did it, Heather. 
you know, now's the time that you can help yourself, okay? I need to understand why you committed this crime. This is the time where you can help yourself. You can do this the hard way or the easy way, okay? That's just, that's called right. the direct conversation. You know, we know that, that your uncle did it, and, you know, we want to help you, and as long as you'll tell us what happened, then you can go home at the end of this interrogation. It's what they did in this yes. case with yes. that. Right, that uh, we know your uncle did it, and all you got to do is tell us. We'll tell let you us go what home. he did. Tell us what he did. And anyone yeah, who's watched those interrogation videos, you know, you know this this kid's playing a guessing game with them. They're like, "Well, what did what did y'all do to her head? Uh, we cut her hair? No, no, no. That's not what you did. What did you do to her head? Uh, you know, how many times did he have to guess before he finally came up with the correct answer? Um, we shot See her it. in the head." That's a good example of step three, minimizing the frequency of their denials. Mm -hmm. Here, he wasn't given a denial, but he wasn't given their answer. Right. So they're minimizing the frequency. You know, that'll never show up in their police report is what the read technique. <laughs> it won't mm -hmm. show up that he said cut her hair. Luckily, they had a tape of it. Yeah. But, you know, it'll, you know, they don't actually tell you that part. And the shifting blame is the step two in the read technique where uh, they try to develop themes that contain reasons that will make you psychologically comfortable or feel justified uh, in committing the crime. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we know that, we know, Brendan, that you really didn't have anything to do with it. It, it, it was your uncle, and you're just as big of a victim almost as the person who, who he killed. Yeah, he made you me know. do it, and, you know, yeah. so whatever. But, and so that, 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 that's what this technique, there's nine steps to this, you know, and uh, it, is, it is very, um, what I want to say, maligned. There, there's a lot of criminologists, particularly people in stuff like the, the uh, Southern Law Center uh, and uh, the Innocence Project that say that this technique unnecessarily lends itself to, to the production of false confession. And so, especially when it's used in someone that's a minor. Mm -hmm. or someone that's not a minor but and has slow. some mental mental infirmity yes yeah, slow well, what about when they are a minor and they're slow i mean that's a double whammy that's the that's the double that's the double yes yeah, that's a, yeah. that's I mean, that's how, up against the wall standing up at second base yeah i just don't even understand how how this has stood as long as it has you know gone through so many court systems and still you know hasn't been overturned um but, you know, on that well, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to explain it to you. Uh, appellate courts are more political than they let on. Mm -hmm. And they oftentimes will not grant appellate relief without some with which they as individuals, even though this shouldn't weigh into it, they won't grant appellate relief to outcomes with, with which they agree. Hmm. And, you know, in their mind... They, you know, and, and you also have the issue as to how well did the appellate court even read the record? Like, what came, what's in the record of the trial? Did it come in, for instance, that uh, it was pretty obvious this vial of blood had been tampered with? I'm, sh I'm sure it would have. I mean, it should have been ripe for cross-examination at the trial that, you know, the hole had, a, had been perforated, the seal had been perforated. You know, wouldn't you agree, officer, that... Uh, uh, if one were to conclude that this blood had been planted, the vial that you uh, uh, looked at and that you've testified to would lend to that conclusion, wouldn't it, sir? 
Right. It would lend to the conclusion that it had been planted because, you know, you have a perforated seal, you got a hole in the stopper, you know, you've got the, the anticoagulant that's in the blood sample to keep it from coagulating, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Well, one of the other um, pieces of evidence that really struck me, and uh, I haven't seen a whole lot about it, um, but that was the key that was found in his trailer. And the reason that that struck me was because I thought to myself, first of all, what woman only has one key on her, well, not just woman, but what person only has one key on their key ring? And how many women just have one, you know, like a plain blue uh, key ring attached to it? Like, it just felt all wrong. And I thought, you know what? That looks to me like a spare key. You know, where yes. are, where's her house keys? Where are whatever other keys that should have been on that key ring? Where were they? And she's a photographer. So right. she, she may have pictures or something on, on her key ring. Well, yeah, we like, I have a big one stuffed key. turtle on mine. Yeah, that one key what? on that plain ass key ring <laughs> did not belong to that woman. I mean, well, it did, but it was, no. it was a, you know, it was a spare key is what it was. Well, you know, in the spirit of the great Sherlock Holmes, sometimes the answer is right there and hitting you in the face. I mean, to me, everything about this case looked like that the police planted evidence in this crime scene that would implicate the guy that had a $35 million civil suit pinned against him. Right. And, you know, you know, if, um, you know, a lot of people have pointed to the boyfriend, I think uh, even Kathleen Zellner, which I want to give a shout out to her because I think she's my hero. But, um, you know, Kathy, yes, she's, yes. <laughs> she's amazing, but, um, I want I want to be her when I grow up, but, um, you know, she had pointed at one point to, uh, the boyfriend and I, I don't think necessarily that the boyfriend, you know, had killed her, but that he was, you know, possibly a part of, uh, the, the framing side of it, you know, setting, setting Avery up and he may have been convinced it could have been a thing like, look, we know he did it, but if you don't help us with this, then he's going to get away with it. Right. Well, the thing that amazes me, and it's so funny how history repeats itself so many times, was what was one of the great big issues in O.J. Simpson? Since Sheck was involved at least tangentially in one and completely in the other, what was the, you know, the sock, the, right? The, the sock... The with the blood on it. Well, the glove, <laughs> uh, yeah, the glove was, was a big one at trial. But I'm talking about Barry Sheck was able to cross-examine the people, the guy that, 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 was, that forensically evaluated the crime scene and collected the evidence because, remember, he was supposed to be wearing gloves when he touched the evidence or it would have, uh, in, it would have affected its integrity, and he was able to effectively cross-examine the fact remember the guy said that he always wore gloves when he handled evidence and that was his normal course procedure and they happened to have some guy was taping him from across the street and he wasn't wearing gloves when he handled any of the evidence but mm. you know the sock the sock that was like looked like it had been swapped through the blood of right. the brown simpson and left in simpson's bedroom right that, that, that was so, that Furman found and that everybody was just sure that he had planted. And if you'll recall, after it came out that he had used the N-word as many times as he did after saying he had never used it, F. Lee Bailey gets up 
uh, well, he didn't ask the question, but he put Johnny Cochran up to it. He said, isn't it true, Detective Furman, that you planted evidence? You planted that sock in that blood. You, you, you swiped it through the blood. You planted it in the bedroom. Isn't that true? And Detective Furman said, uh, I refuse to answer the question on the grounds that it might incriminate me. Yeah, Furman was oh, not, uh, at that, least he got caught, yeah. It's not admissible in a trial of Furman. But when Furman's not on trial, he his refusal to answer the question does raise the inference that he would have answered the question except for the fact that the answer was that he did plant the evidence. You know, the inference, mm -hmm. negative, the jury could have concluded a negative inference from that. You bring that forward to this case here, and what do you have again? You've got blood collected in 85 from a case where he was locked up for 18 years, later exonerated because the DNA in that case came back to a different individual. So they still have this vial of blood. It's got the anticoagulant, the anticoagulant in it. It's been kept all these years. He files a $35 million lawsuit against this city. This woman turns up dead. They park the car at his salvage yard. They put the blood from the vial in the car, bing, bang, boom, the guy that's suing us for $35 million has now got something to worry about uh, aside from the money that he thinks he's about to collect. I have a question. Does that yes. anticoagulant show up when they um, test it? I don't know enough about the science to answer that question. Okay. Uh, I know that it is put in blood samples to keep it from clotting. Okay. And that's why it wasn't clotted after 18 years. That's why it wasn't just, that's why it was still a liquid in the vial that, mm -hmm. that, that it perforated and had been unsealed. Well, and now okay. I hate to keep referring back to the show because I, I like to have our own thoughts. But if I remember correctly, um, wasn't there, didn't they have to create a test to test for this? Because there wasn't even actually a, a test that did that, that, that tested for that. And I coagulant. That's a really hard word to say. <laughs> oh, did they did they create a test to test for the presence of that drug? Yeah. Didn't they have to create that test? Did I don't know. I, I'm I'm not familiar enough with the documentary to answer that as to what that. You know, I watched it, but I don't have that intimate of memory of the details of the show. But I can tell you that that is a common agent used in blood that is stored, right, yes. uh, you know, so, mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine there would have been a record at the crime lab that the vial of blood contained it, Right. would be my, would be my thought. There, I mean, just at every step, there was so many things wrong from, you know, evidence being contaminated in the, in the lab and just in the forensic lab and one thing after the other that um, the state did wrong in this case. Uh, let's talk about let me ask you, let me, hey, wait a minute, i got to ask you one more question before you leave it. Uh -huh. If he were to win a $35 million judgment against that county, <laughs> does, he, does he bankrupt them? I and if they're bankrupt, if they're bankrupt, sure will they will. have the money to pay a police force? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would sure think so. I would, I would think that it would shut them down. Pretty much, and let me let me tell you, the town of Cooperstown, Tennessee, once lost a pretty sizable civil judgment up to several defendants based on some 
law enforcement techniques that were uh, not uh, very copacetic, they actually had to do away with their police force in Cooperstown and request service from the Robertson County Sheriff's Office. Wow. So if I tell you, if I tell you that that's happened before to it, I don't know how big this city is, but a $35 million, if he wins a 35, they, they can't lose this case that they've screwed up. Mm-hmm. They have locked him up for 18 years. He had a rock solid alibi and the DNA doesn't even come back to him. He's locked up for, for 18 years. If he wins $35 million, does he close that town and are all those cops out of work? That's what I'm going to ask you. And if they are, and if they are ladies, isn't that sufficient motivation for them to frame him up for the next one? Yes. Yeah, that sounds, sounds like a pretty good motive to me. I, yep. I have a question, too. On um, We're going back to um, Brandon. It's Brendan, isn't yes, it? Brendan. Brendan mm-hmm. um, he, they were going on the number five and number six um, amendments. Well, yeah, the, the Fifth Amendment, of course, is, is your uh, right to remain silent. The Sixth uh-huh. Amendment is your right to counsel. And we should definitely talk about that. So what they're, what they're saying is, is they overbore his right against self-incrimination with these techniques. They pulled from him a confession uh, in violation of his right against being forced or coerced to incriminate himself. And he was denied his right to being uh, uh, represented while he was being questioned. It's one of the Miranda rights. Right. He... he uh, waived his Miranda rights, but I really want to talk about that, but let's kind of work our way up to it. Cause I think that's going to be a really, um, I think that's going to be the biggest part of our conversation. But in the meantime, I was wondering if you had any comments on Ken Kratz. <laughs> uh, on whom? Ken Kratz. He was the, the prosecuting attorney, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. No, <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. Heavy, you know, the guy that prosecuted the case. Right. Um, yes. Well, I'll tell you this. Th- this is all I can say about him or anybody else that's a prosecutor. Typically what happens is, is they hide behind the skirt of we didn't know what the cops were doing. Okay? When they get busted, you know. Here's my question. Did it, did it seem to you that he took active steps to try to prevent the defense from learning some of the problems with this case? Absolutely. He broke the Brady rules left and right. He was just, yes, he was withholding evidence. He did not want to give them the, uh, and- the, the chance to... Um, and, and, and that's a term of art that you're familiar with, but I'm going to, for the listeners and the viewers, I'm going to tell them that Brady versus Maryland says that a prosecutor has to give upon the defendant's request, and that's the key is the defendant should request it, uh, but he has to give upon the defendant's request any evidence that they have or can reasonably find with diligent effort that would tend to suggest he did not commit the offense. Right. For instance... Having blood from a crime scene in 85 that comes back to a man that is not the defendant, Mm -hmm. that is Brady material. 
and you have to give that over to the defense. They better not find it in your file and learn that you never turn that over, right? Right. Uh, A good example of this, I was going to try a rape case one time, and I was representing in a town, I was representing a very wealthy guy. I'm not going to say what he did for a living because these charges were dropped, and, and if I said it, somebody might figure out who it was. But he was a wealthy guy, and this kid claimed that he had gone in the bathroom and doodled him in the bathroom, okay? Well, none of what the kids said bore out in the uh, video from the restaurant. Uh, you know, everything from as simple as who went in the bathroom first, the kid screws up, right? And the long and short of it is we come on for trial. This matter gets set for trial. We come on for trial, and the morning of trial, the DA has to tell me that the, fa- that the kid's own father watched the kid's statement to police, which was recorded, and told them that he thought the kid was lying. Jesus. Now, they, ha- they had to tell me that the morning of trial. They can't, we, you know, if I find out, if I find that out, this guy hits the stand and lets that go on cross, oh, and it was never given to me. Yeah, that's that's going to be uh, that's going to be bad news, Brown. You know, that's that's going to be bad news. Uh, so uh, that is what that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So, you know, a, a prosecutor here in this in Brendan Dassey's case, you've got uh, well, you know, you've got these interrogation techniques. You've got uh, uh, the fact that he had denied it over the course of his video interrogation several times before something was kind of pulled out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would need, for instance, the, the issue about his mental infirmities. Mm-hmm. They would have to give that to the defense, too, that, well, you know, we, you, you know he's functionally. Of course, the defendant would probably know that because he's representing him. But, you know, that's something else they would have. Well, you know, the officers never took into account that he was functionally uh, slower than, than, what than normal. What about habeas corpus? What about habeas corpus? Yeah. Did he, was he denied that? Well, habeas corpus uh, is uh, holding a body without uh, just uh, cause. And I'll tell you where you see Habe a lot is when an inmate's uh, time is miscalculated at the board of prisons and he's supposed to be released on a certain date and he's not released. He's continued to be held, you know. That's when an inmate files a, a petition for habeas corpus relief and asks the court to order to bring the body to court. Bring forth the body is what habeas corpus means. So where habeas corpus would have come into um, here, Tracy, is, and I think it was Tracy that asked that. Yes, yes. Um, if he's being held in an interrogation room uncharged and, and wants to leave, if he's not under arrest and they don't let him leave, right? And he wants to leave. That might be an issue where uh, they held him illegally. But he was under arrest because they gave him, they read him his Miranda rights. And, and I, yeah, yeah, he, he was under talk, arrest. Go ahead. Let's talk a little bit about that. And I had read somewhere, uh, don't ask me where, I'm sure it's in somewhere in my notes, but... Um, Uh, I had read that um, parents of minors tend to, you know, tend to take the role 
of counsel, which is, uh, and, and oftentimes um, end up giving very bad legal advice. And I think that in Brendan Dassey's case, and this is just, uh, this is more of an intuitional feeling than it is necessarily a, a, a legal professional, you know, opinion. Um, but what I picked up from Brendan by watching the videos and kind of really just paying attention to his demeanor is that he's, um, he's a kid who really, really thrives on, um, the praise and approval of adults around him. And what I'm seeing a lot in him is that, you know, um, well, for instance, his attorney, you know, his attorney at one point is pressuring him, you know, just tell the truth, tell the truth and puts him, uh, I, I cannot even, I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but, uh, sets him up where he's actually having to draw out, map out the, uh, what they did to, to Teresa Hallbuck and, um, I don't think I just said it, Hallback, Hall. Hallback is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, I don't know how to I don't know how to pronounce it, but Hallback hall sounds about hall right. Okay, so um, and well, you know, I just you've got you've got the attorney leaving him unattended, you know, his counsel leaving him in this room where they're pressuring him and and basically leading him into you know what to draw and what to, and it's just it's it's appalling. It's absolutely appalling, but. You know, you've, you've got the attorney telling him, I'm disappointed in you. And, and that's what really, it, you know, he's just trying to please these people. He's just trying to do what they want him to do. I mean, everywhere from the very beginning with the, with the very first interrogations, um, throughout the entire case, this boy is just trying to give these people what they're asking for. And, you know, somewhere in his mind, it's like, he just hasn't caught on. These people are not his friends. They are not on his side. He's, he still thinks he's now, being naive. Now, now, Heather, I want to throw something in here, and this is from someone that practiced law for nearly 20 years and tried over 200 criminal jury trials. Mm -hmm. um, criminal defense attorneys all too often are worried about being liked. They're way too worried about being liked. And in not a by small the clients, town, but by the by the people that they should by, care by the police, by the police, and they right. and they tell their clients, they t I, you know, I never did that. That's probably why I'm now a convicted felon and no longer <laughs> an attorney because the police just hated my guts. But by the um, way, I love your book, you know, the long version. <laughs> yeah, buy my book, the long version. Anyway, um, I uh, what happens is is this attorney goes in there. He's in a small town. He's got to work with these cops again in other cases, and he's kissing their he's kissing their ass. Yeah. And while he's kissing their ass, he's giving his client up. Right. And he's giving he's giving his client terrible advice. Yes. Terrible advice. Yes. You know, you need to tell them the truth. You need to draw this out for them. And by the way, what you get for that, Johnny? Is a life sentence, you know. I mean, what in the hell did he negotiate for I this mean, cooperation? And this is how, you know, I mean, this should have been a perfect example. They they should have been able to see just from this that Brendan Dassey was not mentally capable to even process what was going on around him because at the end of this confession where he's 
you know, given them everything that they're asking for. And God, yes, they had to like pretty much, I mean, they might as well have written it down on a piece of paper and said, okay, read this. But, you know, he gave them everything that they wanted. And then somehow he still believed that after, you know, not admitting, but, you know, I don't, I don't know how to word it, um, you know, giving them this false confession that he had raped and murdered and mutilated a corpse that he was going to get to go home and he wasn't going to miss his test at school the next well, day. I, I know that that seems incredible, but until you've been on the firing line and been in that room, which I have, you know, they came after me several times when I was a lawyer and you will do things that you would never ordinarily do. Sometimes lawyers are the worst defendants in the world. Sometimes they do the work. They do the dumbest stuff ever, you know, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I can tell you that he, who he needed to lean on to get him through this worst moment of his life left the room. Mm -hmm. You know, who he needed to depend on told him to just give them what they want. Mm -hmm. who, he, who, he had, who he had representing, supposed to be representing his legal interest, was more interested in whether these police officers were going to be his buddy when this was over. Yeah. And and for all you attorneys out there that are this kind of attorney, those cops are not your buddy. They're laughing at you behind your back. Mm -hmm. They think you're a pathetic joke. You know, they're they're laughing about you. They they laugh about you every time you're not around. And they're thinking they right think, now, no, no, not me, Fletcher. I'm different. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> they they laugh about you. And and then one of the reasons that I was so acrimonious as an attorney and so confrontational when I was an attorney was I'm not willing to be your joke. You know, I'm not willing to be the brunt of your joke. You know, I if you laugh at me, I'll show you it's not real damn funny in a real damn quick minute, you know. Uh -huh. And that and and that's why I went after police officers as hard as I did when I hit the stand, because I knew I knew the Snickers, I knew what they were doing. See, because I had practiced law in Nashville with a former police officer, <laughs> you know, I knew exactly what was going on. So uh, anyway, the the point is, is that first of all, parents in the interrogation room, I have a war story. And since you're choking on that potato, I thought I'd tell it. <laughs> <laughs> Fletcher's the only person here that can see me right now. I'm drinking my red wine and eating my casserole. <laughs> yeah, but, well, anyway, I was going to tell you that I have a war, I have a war story like, like that. I had a guy that had gone out to this guy's house, and I think this guy was going to try to have homosexual sex with him or something. I think this guy... This guy was giving these young boys money under pretty suspicious circumstances, and he was from a very respectable and wealthy family in the county where he was living. So anyway, the guy goes out there, and uh, he ends up he, – he, he kills the guy, shoots the guy. The guy's naked in his house, and he shoots the guy, kills him. The cops come out there. They find my former client in the front of the car with the murder weapon, you know, and he goes in and says he wants his parents. The sheriff lets the parents go in because they're old friends. He lets the parents go in and talk to him, but he records the whole thing. And there's the mom and dad. Now, you need to tell these people. You need to tell them the truth. We didn't raise you to be a liar. You know, the last thing he needed to be telling them at that moment was the truth. Okay? Because, you know, what he ends up telling them, and this is what beat us at trial, he ends up telling them that... He had gone into the house to steal the dude's guns. 
Well, that's felony murder. You know, if a murder occurs in Tennessee, when you're uh, achieving a felonious result, okay, that's felony murder, right? Now, without, without him entering the house, let me tell you what I had as far as a defense. I was able to get the police officer to admit on cross-examination that the guy that was naked had opened fire on my client before my client ever shot. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't tell him that he enters the house, and the door was unlocked, so there was no forced entry. If he doesn't tell him that he enters the house to steal the gun, I got self-defense. I got my client went out there to the house, went into the house, the naked crazy man opened fire on him, and he shot him to protect himself. Mm-hmm. I got self-defense, except for one thing. Mama was allowed in the interrogation room with Daddy, and Mama and Daddy told him to tell the truth. Tell the truth. When they, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, that, I, that I would have told him to lie because mm-hmm. you can't tell him that either. I would have told him to exercise what Tracy, his what, his Fifth Amendment right. Right to to well, be quiet. Yeah, you have a right to be silent. I would exercise that. Be silent. Don't tell them anything. <laughs> well, the thing is um, that I think that any parent in this situation should realize that they do not have a law degree and they are not competent to give their minor, their child, legal advice. And giving their child legal advice should be as ethically wrong and as, as, as a lay person, you know, as me giving you legal advice. I have a I have something to add too. Um, I think one of the reasons that Dassey got it so they wanted him to testify against Avery in court, and that's why they had him. And um, he didn't do it, so then they took it all the way. They took it further, and that was my. Does Does anybody else have that thought? Well, sure. I mean, right. he was he was a he was an asset to the case. Without him, they had shit. They had nothing. And he didn't go. And he didn't testify in court. He refused. So then they really threw the book at him. Well, they were already really going to throw the book at him. They were for oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was I think thinking so. it's like okay, you no, didn't do what any, we wanted, so you're going. I don't think they ever had any intention of having you know showing leniency um, on Brendan Dassey. Go ahead, Fletcher. Oh, no, they, no, they, they absolutely weren't going to show him any link. They were just telling him that's part of the read technique. You know, it's okay to lie to them. The Supreme Court has said that many times. You can lie to them. And, uh, no, they weren't, they, they weren't going to show him any mercy, any clippancy whatsoever. They, they were, they were just telling him that. Well, I just want to say that, I mean, as a criminal defense attorney, Obviously, former, You've, former, right, right, right. <laughs> I have to make sure we say former. But yeah. As a former criminal defense attorney, and I'm sure you've uh, represented people who were guilty and people who were not guilty. Um, I wouldn't be doing this show right now if there was any part of me that thought that Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery were guilty. Um, 
you know, I, I, I tend to stay on um, the side of who I think is innocent. And, uh, and all, while, you know, everything you're saying is, is very informative, um, you know, as far as like exercising the Miranda rights and whatnot, um, I, I don't feel too terribly bad for people who actually did it and accidentally confessed to doing it and then got charged with it. Well, let me, I, I said this plenty of times when I was a lawyer. I'll say it again. I was not a social worker. Right. You know, I was a criminal defense attorney. And it was my job to defend people. It was not my job to figure out whether or not they had done it. It was the government's job to figure out whether or not they had done it. It was my job to defend them. I mean, that, that's, that's what I did. And, and without so, a proper defense, I mean, the trial could be held as, what, ineffective counsel. And then there right. you go, all over again. Absolutely. Right. But you right. have to have a competent defense attorney. It's just, it's just well, it has to be. Our system has rules, and the rules have to be followed. And even when they're inconvenient, even when they're ugly, and even when it achieves a result with which you vehemently disagree, and even when it achieves a, a result that is unjust, it is still just. Because the criminal jurisprudence system was set up with the underpinning that it's far superior to allow a hundred guilty men uh, to go free than wrongfully convict one innocent man. And here they clearly convicted an innocent man in Steve Avery in 85. And it looks to me like they set him, they set it up and convicted him twice, mm -hmm. you know, convicted him again in 2005. I don't know what happened to Miss, Miss Halbeck. I don't know how to say her name. I don't know what happened to her, but I'm pretty sure that, that, that Steve Avery do, doesn't either. Right. And here's the thing. I mean, you know, everybody gets so caught up on, you know, just give the family justice, give the family justice. But if you are, you know, maybe it does give them some sort of satisfaction. And, you know, I, I sympathize with them. I'm, you know, not by any means minimizing what they've gone through. Um, but if, if what's giving them peace and helping them to sleep at night is the conviction of the wrong man, then that is a false security. That is, you know, and, and every person who is a survivor of a victim, you know, somebody that they know, somebody that they love, should really strive for that, you know, try, strive for the truth. Because, you know, if, if the wrong guy gets convicted, then the person who really did it is getting away with murder. Yeah, there's no justice. There yeah, hasn't been justice. That is justice. not justice. That is not justice at all. But one well, thing and, that's right, and, and, and that doesn't help the family at all because the person that really did it that should be paying the penalty is still at large. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly what I'm saying. And um, did, did you did you guys get the impression from the documentary that the documentary shooters thought that maybe the cops killed her and planted her there to get out oh, of the yeah. suit because. I, I got that distinct sure. impression. I was just wondering, I don't, wondering I don't if, they were you know. Real, um, they weren't real passive about about um, their theory about that. Um, I think they were pretty pretty blatant that that was how they thought. One, thing that, one thing that really got me was that um, they were talking about a, or they were showing a court proceeding where they had a deputy, a law enforcement who saw him with this fire. Mm. And they were asking how high that fire was. And he goes, 
eight to ten feet high. But then he changed. Then it changes and. Well, yeah, then so he's sitting, but he's sitting in a vehicle. It's going to look higher at this vantage point than it would had he been standing there. It's well, just. See, I'm going to tell you, um, and I know that, that um, you know, I mean, you know me. I, I can't keep my mouth shut, and, and there's always going to be some backlash. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but the fact of the matter is that um, <laughs> this, is, this is my motto. That uh, anytime you're making waves, there's going to be adversity. But it's that undertow that you got to watch out for. And that undertow is the people you think you can trust that you can't. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the whole right. thing. Yeah. I mean, and the whole thing about that is that what, what, do I, what I was getting ready to say. Oh, shit. What was I about to say? <laughs> oh, my God. I got so off on, on all that. That you, you trust the police and you can't trust them. Well, yeah. I mean, I, they, they just... Um, I, I do think that they set all this up. Oh, I know what I was going to say. <laughs> all right, this is this is the uh, the the uh, downside of doing live streams. Is I can't I can't edit this out. But um, is that you know when I first watched that um, making a murder, literally the first time that I heard uh, Bobby Dassey and his stepfather's. Um, uh, testimony. I looked at the person I was watching that show with, and I said, "You know what? They're lying." And uh, and I even said, "I I bet they know something. Like some something's up with them. I don't like that." And and uh, and I know that you know Brendan's mother is real defensive when it comes to that, and I understand because it's like, okay, well, you know, you've accused this son of mine, and he's been locked up all these years, but but now, and I I believe it's. Uh, uh, I believe it's Kathleen Zellner that's kind of flipped the script and pointed in their direction. But, you know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, she's she's pointing at them as possible suspects. And it it blew my mind because before I even got to that point, I was like, you know what? There's something off about their testimonies. I'm not buying it. There's, you know, they're in on it. There's something, there's something going on. They did it. They know something, whatever it is. It just didn't feel right. Well, you know, the, the conventional wisdom around recidivism is that people that have been to prison are pe people get accused of a crime. Uh, this isn't about recidivism. This has more to do with psyche, with sociopathic or uh, personality disorder. But people have been accused of a crime and gotten away with it are more apt to commit a crime in the future because they feel like that they're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. They can't be caught. That kind of thing. Here, you've got a guy that spent 18 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit, mm -hmm. right? People that didn't commit offenses get convicted of those offenses. Oh, there are people that get, that, that get convicted of offenses that, uh, that they confessed to doing but didn't do, and they did it because the DA offered them an outcome that they felt like with which they could live, right? right. And so they, they, played, they plead to it. Uh, that's what the whole innocence project that Barry Sheck founded was about, was proving that there's a good number of people in this country that get convicted of things that they really didn't do. The Probably the biggest problem with, with Americans' view of the criminal justice system is the Americans' innate belief that our government is some um, perfect entity incapable of, of misstep, uh, misspeech. Or, or arriving at, uh, you know, the, it's like that they think that 
the police officers are some super sleuth, superhuman, uh, computer-like, artificial intelligence entity. These are people that you went to school with, that you played ball with. I mean, they're no more perfect than you or I. And they arrive at the wrong decision a ton. One of the reasons they do is that they arrive at a crime scene with the, with the problem already worked. I mean, if I go into a math test and I've got the solution before I work the problem, and all I do is go around and make sure the problem works out to the solution at which I've already predetermined, I'm never going to be able to build a bridge, right? You know, I'm, you know, I'm, and how big uh, I'm going to, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'll be the engineer that can't build a bridge. that stands up because, you know, I don't have to know the math to build a bridge because I've, I've got the solution worked out before I even get to the place where we're, where we're building the bridge. So the whole point that I was uh, trying to make is, is that number one, police officers get it wrong. They get it wrong a lot. Heather, you know this, Tracy, you know this, I know this, but <laughs> yes. we've been on the inside. We, we've been on the inside of the system. We know it because we've seen it. We've seen it over and over and over again. That's number one. Number two, if you're the target of a criminal investigation, keep your freaking mouth shut. You know, the Miranda warning says you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law. Holy crap, they tell you twice. They tell you, <laughs> no, no, most people have never listened to the Miranda warning. You have the right to remain silent. If you give up, if you waive that right, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You know, so they're telling you right now, they're going to use anything. You, and so you, so parents don't go in the interrogation room and tell the kid to just tell the truth. No. Maybe you should go in there and tell the kid, don't say a word until your attorney gets here. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be some good advice. Anyone yeah. that even goes in to be questioned needs an attorney, even when they call you on the phone. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Wait, what you need when they call you on the phone ways. is a recorder. Yeah. <laughs> that was I think yep. that might be the best advice that my mentor has ever given me. She's don't have a conversation. Don't have a conversation with anybody, but especially, you know, law enforcement without recording the conversation because they And, and you know, and you know, she she was a professional private investigator like you, correct? Correct. Why would she have that? Why would she be of that opinion? Oh, if they, if everything yeah. in law enforcement was as was as rosy and and uh, uh, rose cover colored as we want to believe, why would a professional private investigator give you that advice, Heather? You know, I mean, here's the problem: is that the system is man-made. You know, and anytime whatever you've got, if it's made by humans, which um, other than the earth and the sun and the plants and the trees and you know all that is it's man-made you know so anything that's man-made is um is flawed in some way and the system is man-made so it's flawed it's it's um it's driven by greed sometimes and power and mm -hmm. influence and pride and i think that what we have a lot of times in in a lot of these cases is that you know they have to come forward and say, I have a suspect. And once they do, um, you know, say that they have a suspect and, and point the finger in a certain direction, then it becomes a matter of pride. Because if they have to come forward at some point and say, you know what, we were wrong. It wasn't this person over here. It was actually this person over there. Then they look bad. And they don't, they're not Or the, it's even a criminal enterprise all on its own sometimes. Well. And, and, you know, and, you know, Tracy, you were talking about Brady versus Marilyn, or one of you was if they go down the wrong if, if they 
if they go down the wrong lane and they and they develop uh, an entire a case against a target that isn't the guy, when the guy they charge comes to trial, they have to tell the defense attorney that you know what we thought it was Fletcher Long before we thought it was Heather Cohen, Don't and you know that's something shit. that. <laughs> that that's Bra- that's Brady <laughs> that's that's Brady material though. I mean, your attorney can say, "Isn't it true, Detective right. Ellis, that when you first conducted this investigation, you were convinced that it was Fletcher Long, weren't you?" Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, yes. You know. Really, honestly, um, that was a huge threat to the Bovo case because you know, with Terry Dykus being so fixated on Terry Britt for as long as he was. Um, it, I think it, it, it posed a challenge for the prosecutor because... You know, I can tell you, I was planning on focusing on it. Yes. I bet. I would, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. I mean... I was going to focus. You'd have heard a lot of it out of me. Well, that would have been a given. That was a given. <laughs> I wish it was you we were listening to because it would have been a lot more entertaining. I'll tell you that. But... I was never I was never accused for lacking for drama, was I? No, no, no. <laughs> the bow tie killer. <laughs> Anywho, um, just kind of you know getting into the specifics about um, you know Brendan Dassey's case. Um, you know, I'd written this report. I don't know how many people have looked at it, but but I really studied up on you know case law and. Uh, different things that I really felt that the Supreme Court, the appellate court, should have taken into consideration. I guess, um, I'm sorry, um, I stand corrected. It's actually uh, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Because it was federal, right? Right. Well, the the, uh, the appellate court, the appellate court. court heard it, um, and then the state demanded a full panel hearing. And so they went in and they had the full panel hearing because... Uh, uh, how many was it with just the partial? Was it uh, four? It was a four-three. Was four. the the first decision? Right. Yeah. And they won in that first hearing, uh, which was, you know, I think everybody's just jumping up and down and so glad that justice was served. And then, um, then the state demands a full panel, and unfortunately, they lost in that. But um, what I what I really wanted to focus on is the different ways that I felt that the court had failed um, the the whole justice system because uh, the Supreme Court had already laid out laws through through uh, precedent um, in, say, uh, in Ray Galt, 1967, where the Supreme Court pointed out the lower court's failure to provide juveniles the basic procedural, procedural safeguards. Um, and one such issue of that was, uh, and I am reading, <laughs> but this is the, this is the report that I'd written, um, was that uh, was the privilege against self-incrimination whether juveniles possess the level of maturity to understand and/or waive their Miranda rights, which is what we were just talking about and why I'm bringing it up. Uh, the California Supreme Court developed what was called the totality of circumstances doctrine which tests the waiver of juveniles in order to determine whether it is valid or not. Um, The case further addresses the issue of inherent coercion, um, implicit interrogations, and suggests the presence of a juvenile court officer or another supportive adult to protect 
pro to prevent coercion. I've had a couple of glasses of wine. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> I'll be wasted by the end of this. But um, uh, so one of the biggest problems with interrogating juveniles is the increased vulnerability to inherent coercion. While most interrogations do not employ the use of physical threats, more subtle ta tactics are, uh, are likely to be effective with juveniles. Um, so with that being said, juveniles are especially susceptible to the use of friendliness for the purpose of playing on their insecurities. Um, so what I really feel like they failed Brandon Dassey on, and, and if you read the um, opinions, the, dis the, the dissents and the uh, majority, you know, if you go through all of that, you'll see that the case um, was won and based on the fact that the interrogation was a friendly interrogation, that he was comfortable. But the Supreme Court had already, um, had already addressed that issue and had decided that with juveniles that, you know, that, that sometimes, you know, the more subtle ta tactics were what were effective. And so why they didn't recognize that, um, I don't know. I, I thought it was really surprising that they wouldn't follow their own, uh, their own precedents. And the juvenile doesn't know any better. They don't know that cops can do that to them. They don't know at I mean, they do, but they don't have the life experience to, um, they, I mean, what, eight years before that, they believed in Santa Claus. Well, and they're taught to um, respect authority. And, right. you know, if somebody's dressed in a police uniform and has a badge, then they're authority. And uh, Brendan Dussey, he was such a naive and um, just very, very vulnerable uh, boy, I, I think he was just. I mean, I don't. I don't really know what uh, age we would put on him as far as being like. Uh, I don't know. Is IQ or Deve so devel developmentally? Yeah, I yes. think. Yeah, I so think developmentally, I would have put him somewhere in that middle class of sevens. So you've heard of the rule of sevens where if you're under seven years old, a minor is, is uh, incapable of formulating the intent to commit a crime. If you're between seven and 14, you're presumptively incapable. And if you're 14 or older, you're presumptively capable. Well, I think that he probably was age-wise in the third seven group. And, and developmentally, I would say he was, he was somewhere between seven and nine years old, it appeared to me, from, from his interview. Did he drive a vehicle? Did he have a driver's license? No, I don't believe so. He, um, mm. mm -mm. I mean, I can't say that with certainty, but Fletcher, do you know? I, I really don't think I he don't, did. He looked like he was of the age where he could have, mm -hmm. but I don't know that he did. I don't know that he did. Right. Well, guys, I hate to, I hate to be the uh, stiff here, but I'm kind of running up against the clock, so... <laughs> No, you are not gonna jump off here. I gotta, I've gotta jump off. My daughter's come in to help trim the tree. All right, well, that's fun. that's nice. You're behind though, because I trimmed mine on Thanksgiving. I haven't well, trimmed uh, mine yet. So. I'm, I'm always behind Heather. She's, she's I'm always, ahead, she's always ahead of me some way or another. And I'm always leading the, leading the, in the. I mean, I'm always behind. So, <laughs> come on, Tracy, make up your mind. Where are you at? <laughs> I'm in the back. Where Where are you at on this soul train? Come on. <laughs> I'm in the very back. All right. 
Well, Fletcher, I guess you're dismissed from class. Well, thank you. I, guys, I had a, it was a great show, and it's a case that certainly is of international interest, and it was a fabulous documentary, if nothing else, and I hope people were somewhat edified by the uh, things that we brought to the table tonight. I'll, I will check y'all later. All right. All right. Have fun. Merry Christmas, what's, everybody. What's, you always say, oh, yeah, Merry Christmas, but you got to say the thing, that thing you've been saying. What is it, about the ditches? Or what? Come on. Oh, keep her, keep Keep her between the ditches. Keep it between the ditches, and we will see you next week on the final report. Peace. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.